And I want to leave my slides with Warren as well. So if there's anything you saw on the slides or want to take notes, just that the church will have those. And, they, and you can have those and refer back to. And I think they're recording this as well. So you should have access to that. Um, there we go. Great. And I know it's the afternoon. And so somebody challenged me. Who said that to me? To keep you, keep you awake. Uh, then again, I, I like lecture to freshmen at 8 a.m. So... So if you fall asleep, I just think that's just like a normal, like a normal, like that everybody, I put, I, people are sleeping in my classes all the time. But if you need to like stay awake, and that means you need to kind of stand up and just kind of stand in the back or move around, just go ahead and take care of yourself this afternoon. So hopefully we'll keep it, you know, energetic and interesting. Uh, but if you just got to kind of stand up and kind of walk around, go ahead and do that. Don't, you won't bother me. So... Um, some of you guys weren't here with me in the morning, but if you were in the, here in the morning, so I take us down this path to where I think one of the reasons why our, our culture is so anxious is that the very recommendation for mental health is actually a really bad, I think, recommendation. It actually makes us more brittle and fragile and unstable. And I also think, as we've talked about, it actually is behind some of our social problems, not just feeling bad about ourselves, but uh, feelings of conflict with other people within our group and across different groups. And so I want to transition to the positive side of things. And I want to start by kind of um, asking about a puzzle, uh, humility. So there's a thing in positive... So, oh, oh, did I click on this slide? So what I want to talk about this afternoon is moving from a performance-based identity, performing in the hero system when it's rooted in performance and evaluation and comparison, uh, to something that transcends, goes beyond. So that's the title of this set, beyond, something beyond self-esteem, something different, and something maybe transcendent. And, and I think, it, and there's going to be perspectives from positive psychology is what we're going to be talking about. Um, and I want to start with just a puzzle, like humility. Lots of people think humility is a very, uh, we talk about the ego, Humility is a virtue of the ego, right? To have a humble, be a humble person. But if you try to define humility, it's hard, isn't it? Like, how would you define humility? What's the mark of a humble person? Anybody have? You can actually answer this question. What's like, what, what is humility? To seek and do God's will. Okay. Consider other people better than yourself. Yeah, at least refrain from considering yourself better than other people. That's good. Maybe it's a restraint, a form of self-control. Um, an openness to the other. Openness to other people, huh? Yeah, not privileging or being so egocentric. Um, compassion, for compassion for others. Uh, it's interesting because psychologists, there's a movement called positive psychology. I don't know if anybody's familiar with, but the last 20 years, there's been a kind of surge of research in the area of what's called positive psychology. Well, what's that? Well, about 20 years ago, kind of psychologists looked around and go, like, we know a lot about negative psychology. Like, we spend all of our time talking about depression and anxiety and treatments to kind of take somebody who's in a hole and get them up to normal, back to baseline, to normal. And so all of our research, all of our diagnoses, all of our technology to help people is all about rehabilitating from the negative to normal. 
And then about 20 years ago, psychology says, well, could we take everything we know about human psychology and behavior change and therapy, and what about taking somebody who's normal to an optimal, flourishing life? What if we just took everything we knew about psychology and instead, instead of applying it to depression, applied it to happiness and joy? And so thus became a movement called positive psychology. And you can Google, go to Amazon. There'll be lots of books about now happiness and gratitude and flourishing. And so a lot of psychological energy in this area. And one of the um, things you want to do in psychology is like study these things and measure these things. And so we would create surveys to study things on, like virtues. And, and uh, one of the snarliest things in positive psychology is the virtue of humility. How do you assess humility in a person on a survey like you can you can survey other virtues like you know are you patient strongly agree strongly disagree you can raise your hand are you patient you know um are you empathic like are you moved by the suffering of other people you know yeah i do you know but but what if i asked you the question like i are, are you humble strongly agree you know, like, it's, it's hard to, like, there's something paradoxical. There's something paradoxical about asking you to evaluate and rate your own humility. And, and literally, no, I, I kid you not, one of the holy grails in positive psychology is humility assessment. Researcher after researcher has, has thrown their career on the on the rock of humility assessment only to be thrown back and go like, I, I, I don't know how you assess it. We, you can assess almost every virtue with self-report. I mean, whether or not people will be truthful or not, I, I get that, right? If I ask you if you are a lover, you'd say, yeah, strong, yeah. So that's a different issue. It, but it's not paradoxical to ask somebody, do you love me, right? Like, that's not paradoxical. It's not weird on the face. But there's something inherently paradoxical about saying, are you humble? And you saying, yes, I am. Like, it's just, it's just, you know, it's not that it's an honesty question. It just doesn't make sense, okay? And, and, and so literally, there's all of these measurement instruments that assess all these virtues and character traits, except one. Humility has been kind of this hard thing to assess because of the paradox. And I'm going to start there with the paradox of humility because I think it points us towards where I want to go this afternoon, which is there's something inherently wrong or weird about assessing the self. That's what humility points out. This whole thing that we've been talking about, assessing the self, grading the self, evaluating the self, judging how I measure up to other people, this constant measuring of the self, to esteem the self, humility kind of points out that maybe the root to happiness isn't in that constant measuring of the self. How am I doing? But something else completely. Maybe not thinking of the self at all. Maybe we're transcending the self. Maybe the self isn't something to be obsessed over and measured and evaluated but humility is almost, I would argue, marked by kind of a degree of just the self just isn't a thing. Humble people are extraordinarily talented, but they just don't think about it. 
It's like they, they, they lack an ego focus about themselves. Um, and so I want to kind of use humility to kind of suggest there's something beyond self-esteem, something different, something just kind of just steps out of the whole trap of measurement. And so what we're going to do for the first part of this is take some time going through signposts from uh, positive psychology. I'm going to call these signposts because I do not think these are the answer. Each of these things are not the answer, but there are things that have been happening in positive psychology um, to suggest that transcending self-esteem might be the root. Maybe self-esteem is the problem, and we need something different, a different approach to think about the self. And there have been lots of different things, researchers doing things in different areas. Some of them overlap, some of them very different, but I think they all are pointing us towards an answer. But they are themselves not an answer. But they point us toward an answer that suggests maybe there's something about ourself that doesn't need to be evaluated but transcended. Uh, maybe self-forgetfulness is a, a part of this. And so the signposts that we're going to quickly go through are uh, research into the quiet ego, mindfulness, the small self, mattering, and gratitude. Again, these overlap a little bit, and sometimes they're just very different. But I think they all kind of cumulatively tell a story that maybe mental well-being isn't rooted in constantly obsessing and esteeming the self, but something else. So let's start with what's called the quiet ego. Okay? So the quiet ego suggests there's this idea of ego volume, um, the chatter that you have in your head. I don't know if you've noticed that there's a lot of chatter in your head. Um, you're, we're constantly self-focused and evaluating ourselves, and so our egos are noisy. We're obsessively self-focused. We're defensive, um, and we're constantly worried about how we're being diminished or enhanced in this interaction. Um, I have a noisy ego. Um, I am horrible at remembering people's names when they introduce to me, not because I have a bad memory, but because my ego is so noisy I'm often worrying about myself. They're talking to me, but I'm like, uh, am I looking weird? You know, am I, you know, like, I, is it made like that you're so in your own head that people are talking to you and you're not listening uh, because the ego is so, you're worried about your self-presentation. What are they thinking about you? What am I going to say? Am I talking too much? Um, you, you know, uh, am I addressed appropriately for this context? constantly thinking. So a lot of us have noisy egos, self-focus. And so a lot of researchers are focusing on what we call a quiet ego, which is was just turning down the volume of that internal dialogue, just not obsessing about yourself so much, um, t- tuning it down, less attached to what's going on and worrying about the social thing. And obviously, we kind of know that, right? If your ego is quiet, um, you have more resources to be present with the person standing in front of you. So there's a connection between ego volume, being self-absorbed, you know, how does my hair look, versus how was your day, and really being present in that interaction when they're talking to you. And so there's a direct correspondence here to how noisy your ego is, how obsessed you are with how you're performing in this social interaction with your ability to be present. So if the ego goes down, you can be more present to other people. Um, More on that in a minute. Um, And what's interesting about that is that there's there's lots of research that people have this quieter ego. They're just not worried about their inner, they're not, you know, worried much about their inner life or whatever. They're they're happier. They're 
more able to forgive. They're more tolerant of other people. And again, going back to that terror managed theory, they have less of that defensive, that existential terror. They're just, um, and so there's these, all these benefits. So we see all that worry in the, before lunch, and now we have something here, the turning down the ego volume that is going in the opposite direction towards tolerance and emotional well-being. And what is it, what's the signpost telling us? Less ego, quieter ego, less self-focus. Is the, is tr- so trans- getting out of the trap of constantly measuring yourself or esteeming yourself and just not thinking about yourself. So, that, so the ego is a, quiet ego is a signpost. Related to this research is mindfulness. Mindfulness is like all the rage now. Has anybody come across the mindfulness literature? Mindfulness is just everywhere now. Is this kind of like generic. It's like the aspirin of mental health right now. <laughs> mindfulness. Like people are like like what do you want to do to kind of be happier and healthier or whatever like the recommendation in the popular culture now is this is kind of the Tylenol of well-being. It's cheap, it's easy to do and practice it. Mindfulness. So it's, you know, it's the Tylenol of mental health. So you don't have to go to a therapist or anything like that, but if you do this, you'll get some benefit from it. Well, what is mindfulness? And it's just I mean, that's a technical definition, non-defensive awareness and self-forgetting. But basically, it's the practice of being in the moment. Not, being, not having a noisy ego, but being present in the moment. What is happening right now? This, this comes from Eastern spiritualities, um, like a Buddhist Eastern spirituality, which is kind of one of the reasons why I think it's kind of all the rage right now. Because, you know, Western Christian spiritualities are like, ah, they're lame right now. But Eastern Buddhist spiritualities are kind of all the rage. Yoga and Eastern spiritualities are kind of the big thing. And to be clear, there's important practices from the Eastern traditions. I'm not denigrating. I'm just taking the temperature of what's kind of in right now culturally. Um, And so it comes from that kind of meditative practice where I have these noise. So if you think about basic mindfulness practice where you just sit and maybe concentrate on your breathing. And if you ever do that, if you just try to sit silently, um, you'll notice how actually noisy your ego is has anybody done this somebody sat tried to like just be present for five minutes and it's really hard to do you if you want to if you want a clear experience of ego volume sit for five minutes and just be present and you can't do it like and that's five minutes let alone 30 to an hour but if you just sit there and concentrate on your breathing you know soon you'll be sitting there going um this is stupid, you know, like, and you're, or you're like, or like, uh, and then, and then another thought of like, oh my gosh, I forgot to call Susan, you know, that pops up in your head, you know, and then you're like, uh, am I doing this right? And, and that, so performance, it performance thoughts emerge. So you're, you're trying to be non-performative and yet you're going like, am I doing it right? You know, like, you're like, am I praying right? So it's hard to escape the performance. And, and, and so in mindfulness practice, you're supposed to just kind of let that thought come up, but then let it go. Like, just come back to your breath. Just stay focusing on your breath and practicing being present. And so the idea there is you practice that, and it quiets the ego. But then you're trying to practice that in all parts of your life. So if you're, somebody's talking to you, try to be present as they're talking to you. Don't be half, half listening or half... We're very distracted. Uh, a lot of people talk about we're multitaskers now. And psychologists say nobody ever multitasks. What they talk about now is not multitasking, but continuous partial attention. That's what we give to the world. We have continuous but partial 
attention. So I am on my phone and listening. I am not multitasking. I am giving continuous partial attention. I'm partially paying attention to my phone and partially paying attention to you and partially watching the Netflix show, right? I'm, it's all going on, and I'm giving it a bit of it. And so mindfulness is to kind of gathering your attention back up and practicing devoting it. So if you're like, well, what's the point of sitting for five minutes and listening to, you know, watching your breath? Well, the answer is, well, it quiets the ego down, and there's benefits to that. But also that discipline of saying, right here, right now, this is all that's happening. And that's a discipline that we all can practice. Like, so when my wife is talking to me um, in the morning and I'm on my laptop, I typically find myself guilty of continuous partial attention. She's talking to me. I'm also surfing the Internet. And then I'm always saying, well, what'd you say? And she goes, you weren't listening to me. And I was like, ah, yeah, well, so I have to... Put the computer away, you know, and, and be present right here, right now, okay? So mindfulness is a big thing. But notice again what it's doing. It's, it's not focusing on the ego. It's, it's it, letting go of all of those ego thoughts to be present in the moment. So again, a form of transcendence. And, and research is showing, like I said, that it, it helps with mental health, higher, you know, higher life satisfaction, self-esteem and optimism, and so just this practice of not thinking about the self, being present, is, points us as a signpost towards the transcending the ego. Um, okay, another bit of evidence is uh, awe and the small self. So researchers in the area of positive psychology have been studying the impacts of awe and wonder and amazement upon the ego. And what they have discovered is that when we experience awe or wonder, um, we, we have an experience of a small self. Now, to be clear, this isn't like a diminished self, like uh, I'm a worm. So by small here, we don't mean insignificant, but we mean kind of small as a part of a greater whole, okay? Um, so the, small, the self gets smaller, So what is awe? Awe is just positive feelings of wonder and amazement. A lot of us experience this in nature, um, where we kind of feel stunned or shocked by the night sky or by an ocean or a mountain. It can be mystical religious experiences that we have. So God can stun us with wonder and awe. And so we have a religious experience in praise or we've stood on moments where God has kind of stunned us into a sense of his, his size or being or his magnificence. Um, it could be wonderful cultural artifacts. You could go to, you know, um, what would stun us with beauty like art or architecture. You can, for me, like big, big, like Gothic cathedrals kind of stun me this way, like the stained glass and the size of it kind of stun me with just, oh, this is amazing that, that this bit of art. So, um, and then it could be morally exemplary people. Uh, there are saints among us, living and dead, who kind of we witness their beauty of the way they go through the world, and they kind of stun us with awe or amazement. So Mother Teresa of Calcutta or a, or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr., we look at these people, heroes, and they fill us with wonder and awe at their courage or their sacrifice. Um, we can even see that in like war movies where people just do these heroic things. You're like, I'm just amazed that they did that. Um, uh, it, what's, and what's, so what's interesting about awe is that it creates a small self, and by that we mean these two things, that your self-interest seems inconsequential. In the scheme of things, you're like, ah, you know, like my drama, 
just seems not that big of a deal, which isn't really healthy. I don't know if you've noticed. How many of you guys are just tired with yourself? Anybody tired? Do we get like tired of yourself? You're just like, I'm just kind of tired of myself. Like the drama I churn up every day. I just, I have self fatigue. Does anybody have self fatigue? I, I, every day I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh my gosh, you again? <laughs> you know, I just like, it's killing me. Like you and your petty little dramas, you know. And so I just kind of look at myself, just like, you know, so. And, and so the small self is, is not, again, a, like your, your life is inconsequential, but kind of the drama, the ego noise just seems like there's bigger fish to fry, right? This is a big world with some amazing things, and, and I'm kind of probably being petty. Like me worrying about my hair, um, you know, or clothing, or, like, you know, the stupid stuff starts falling away when we bump into kind of these awe-inspiring events. So the self-interest seems inconsequential, and you start to be part of a, of a bigger whole, which is important, right? Because we talked about how self-esteem divides us. But awe, transcendence, can unite us because we kind of feel like, oh, we're all kind of connected here. And so, you, you know, you'll, sometimes you'll see even atheists try to evoke a religious feeling. Like Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, you know they, they pan back, and we look at the pale blue dot of the, you know, the, of the earth, and the awe of the size of the cosmos stuns us. And then we look at that pale blue dot, and we're like, here we are. Um, man, can it all just drop away, and we can just really focus on being united because what we have here on this planet is really precious, and it's rare, and so it creates feelings of camaraderie and family, it transcends all the local stuff that divides us. And so awe can do that. Even in a, in a non-spiritual way, just the size of the cosmos can stun us into a feeling of unity with each other. Um, that's about as close to religion as some atheists get. But they're still leveraging transcendence toward the greater good, right? They're trying to tr- leverage awe towards love, which is a signpost, I think, that even atheists have to go big, to get to compassion. Um, you might say, how do you measure this? this? What I'm about to show you is just kind of nerdy, so I apologize. But you might be like, well, how do you measure the small self? And so psychologists are kind of creative. This is actually from a study in 2017. And so they'll have people um, uh, have an experience of awe. They might watch a documentary. They might go through something. And then they ask them which one best describes how they feel. And so you can kind of see on the left side, um, the size of the self relative to the world. And so what they, can you all see that? The self gets a little smaller. And so what they show is whenever people experience like some awe-inspiring thing, they're more likely to describe themselves this way. Like that seems like me right now. And when they don't experience awe, they kind of like, that's me. They're a little bigger in the world. And then they use even the script, the me signature, so that's how they were like, how do you measure the size of yourself? They'll give people literally graphic representations and say, well, how big are you? And after you experience awe, you're like, I'm this little self. You know, just a little person, you know, a part of a bigger whole. And then when you don't experience awe, you're like, this is me, big self, big ego, big me. So anyway, psychologists are kind of creative that way. So quiet ego, mindfulness. Awe and a small self, transcendence, triggering compassion and love. Again, these are all signposts to say maybe there's a way to think about the self that's beyond self-esteem, 
Um, another bit of data here is uh, mattering. Um, this is real close to the secret of happiness. We're not quite there yet, but this is probably one of the most clearest signposts. It's very new research. So in the, the positive psychology literature, a new variable has been named just last couple years called mattering. Right? And mattering, as you see here, is the steady conviction um, that your life and actions matter, that your life and your actions have value and worth, uh, and significance regardless of present circumstances. This durable, steady conviction that you matter. Right? That your life... Dis- and here's the key. Despite current circumstances. Because when you're winning, of course you matter. Because you're <laughs> winning in the hero system. Mattering is the steady, durable conviction that even when you're unemployed, even when you're a mom and a, and a professional woman and you feel like you don't do any of that very well, right, that, right, it, in, when the circumstances are, when your life is in the ditch, that you're still, life has, that you matter, okay, a steady, durable conviction. And the reason why this has become an important variable for psychologists is because I think it's starting to dawn on psychologists that, that there's a problem that I have been describing, that there's a problem at the heart of self-esteem. And they're starting to describe self-esteem, not as self-esteem, but two different kinds of ways, right? So literature is starting to talk about what we call fragile, contingent. By contingent, we mean uh, dependent upon something else. You matter if you're gainfully employed and doing well, right? You matter if your kids are thriving and happy, right? You matter if your spouse loves you. Right, so self-esteem is contingent on this if, dependent upon it. So a fragile, dependent, and uns- uh, that broke across the line, an unstable self-esteem. That in the red is everything we've been talking about. Self-esteem is inherently unstable, fragile, and contingent upon other things. So it works when it's working, but leaves you very vulnerable to downturns in life. So... We're searching now for what we're going to call a stable or a secure or a durable self-esteem. What would be, where does that come from? And so the, pot, the theory is, well, this, it's got to be a conviction. It's got to be a sense of mattering. Now, I'm sure you as a religious person are looking at this screen and going like, well, how do you get that? So in many ways, this is where... Speaking as a Christian psychologist, you can often start noticing when psychology is spinning its wheels, when it starts getting into these circular arguments, um, right? And this is one of those moments when psychology has bumped up against something that it, it can't answer as at, within the realm of psychology. So that's why it's a signpost. So, of course... If your self-esteem was stable and durable and steady, that would be a great, right? And so how do you get it? By mattering. Well, what is mattering? The very thing you don't have, right? You matter by having a steady, durable, stable self-esteem. It's a little circular. I don't know if you noticed this, right? It's like, you know, you'll have a stable self-esteem when you matter. And you only really matter when you have a stable 
self-esteem. And it's at this point you realize psychology is bumped up against the limits of what it's allowed to say. Because it's just hanging there out of thin air, right? The secret of happiness is there for everybody. It's on the screen. Just matter, everybody. Okay? If you could just matter, if you could have a a sturdy, durable conviction that your life matters no matter what, no matter what your family life has been like, no matter the abuse, the trauma, the poverty, the unemployment, the struggles, the addictions, the failures of yourself and your family, that you still matter. Despite all of that long list, and you still matter, do it. That's, you know, you're like, well, of course, that's kind of, you raise your hand at the back of the psychology classroom. Well, that's kind of like the point of like, how does one get that? Just there it is, the answer, the hook. It's a, it's a hook hanging in the middle. Like, how do I get it? Um, I love Brene Brown, you know, but if you, if you read, like, if you, if you listen to Brene Brown's TED Talk, her very first one about shame, um, she hits another one of these wheels spinning, right? Because she talks about shame. And, and she did all of this coding. This is her very first TED Talk that viral. Millions and millions of people have watched it. At the, but at the heart of it is an inconsistency. So we're attracted to her message there, but there's a, at the heart of it is an inconsistency. What was the inconsistency? She says, right, we all experience this shame. And so she went through all of her data, coded all of her data to figure out who were the people that were shame resilient. You know? And she concludes in the video, she goes, the people that were shame resilient were the people that were able to risk vulnerability. And we're like, oh, yeah, we all need to risk vulnerability. And then she did more coding. And she said, who are these people that dare greatly? Who are these people that are just say, this is me, a flawed, broken human being? No ego th- defensiveness, no ego threat, humble, right? They're, they're just transparent, vulnerable people. These are the people that are the most healthy, shame-resilient people. And she coded all through the things. Who are these people? And she says, quote, these are the people that already feel Notice the inconsistency? Already feel worthy of love and belonging. They matter. Right? And again, you should raise your hand in the back of the Brene Brown classroom and go like, great, then how do I get there? Because it seems like to be, to dare greatly, I already have to be convinced that I'm worthy of love and belonging. Because if you're not convinced of that, Right? If you're fundamentally insecure and you're playing the self-esteem game, you can't be vulnerable. Because if I share the vulnerable thing, you might reject me. And my social meter goes down and go like, oh, I'm not. So again, we're caught up in this cycle of like the very thing that gets you to mental health is the very thing that presupposes a degree of mental health. Um, now, if you know all of Brene Brown's work, like outside of the TED Talk, and you hear her kind of off record, you realize that her journey down this road of vulnerability led her to have a spiritual conversion. And so her biography on the side can be religious. But, but when she speaks to secular audiences, you get this kind of up here. You get kind of, we can go to this point with a secular conversation. You need to matter. She can say, to risk vulnerability, you have to believe you are worthy of love and belonging. And we all nod and go, that's right. We do got to do that. I don't know how to do that, though. Because we're still trapped in the hero system of the, of the self-esteem project. So 
Brene Brown's videos are signposts too. She's pointing us to the right answer. She can't say the right answer because she's at the University of Houston at a TED Talk. So she can't preach. She can signpost us toward the answer, and she has. She preaches in other contexts, to be clear. Um, so I'm just kind of kind of connecting her with this slide here. So you have to, you have to matter. Um, and then let me end with one more slide, one more signpost, gratitude. Um, in many ways, gratitude is... Um, it really is kind of one of the, the, the best answers we have towards asking about happiness. When they have interviewed the happiest people in the world, remember I talked about the secret to happiness? Um, we're getting there. This, you, you might argue that gratitude is the secret sauce to happiness. Because um, when they interview the happiest people in the world, like what are they like? Like what are their lives like? What is the character traits um, what Enneagram number are they? You know, like, who are these? Who are these unicorns? The happiest people in the world. Like, can we find one of them and ask them, like, what's the secret? And over and over and over, surveys show that the happiest people in the world are characterized by one distinctive trait, and it is gratitude. Um, you might not know this, but in the Greek, the word for gift is the same word for grace. Those are the same word. So gift and grace are the exact same word. To receive a gift, to receive grace, is the secret to happiness. That's a really good signpost. Um, And why is it? Like, why is gratitude so integral to happiness? It's because of this. Gratitude takes something in your life that is a source of dissatisfaction, and it graces it turns it into a gift. So this, you know, crappy thing you have in your life, a source of angst and anxiety and dissatisfaction and insecurity, right, this bad thing in your life, becomes a joy and a gift. That's the magic of gratitude, okay? It can take... So uh, let me give you an example. So my dad, come back to my dad, um was the kind of a guy that uh, we would drive our cars into the ground. That was the rule. A car really only got good after it was paid off. Right? Once it got paid off, every mile you could drive that car was a gain. Right? It was one more month without a payment. Anybody was like, amen to that, right? So you'd pay off a car, and then you would drive it until it, it just literally couldn't go. That's when a car got good. Okay? When you're paying a car off, it's horrible. Okay? But when it's paid off, man, it's like, all right, no more payment. We will drive this thing for 10 years if we have to. So we would push cars probably past the point <laughs> that at least it was socially acceptable. So I'm going to tell you a story about one of the cars that we drove. My dad had this car. It was a Buick. It was a green Buick. And the car was so bad, we had got it paid off, and Dad came to the family and goes, here's the thing. If we could just get this car through the summer, that would be great for the family finances. So we just got to drive it for basically two months. If we could drive this for two months, that would be perfect. And we're like, all right, we'll drive it. Here's the trouble. 
the car would only get out of this, like, it would not get out of second gear. So it can only go, like, 15 miles an hour, max. It would get to 15 miles an hour, max. It would not do anything else after that. And when it would get up to 15 miles an hour, it made this loud knocking noise, like, it would just go down the road, very loud. Um, that was not the worst of it. The other worst of it was, like, only the driver's side door worked. And so to get into the car, um, back rear, yeah, only one. So you have to get in the driver's side and climb over the back seats or climb through the windows. Um, and then the top of the car was this green vinyl that had been so bleached out by the sun. It had turned fluorescent green, like, a flore- like, like the, the uniforms for the Seattle Seahawks. Think of that fluorescent green on the top, and it was all cracked, too. So this, yeah, this just looked like a bad car. But Dad's like, but my mom only lived about, an, like, two miles away. And uh, he's like, all we need to do is just for two months, just that would be the car to get Mom to work. You know, let's, let's all do that. And we were like, all right, let's do it. So we just would drive that car two miles, two miles back. And that's all we did for two months. <laughs> Telling you all I have to say this. One day, my mom got a, she worked at the YMC. She got a knock at the door. A very wealthy woman who, who's part of her fitness classes there said, can I come in and talk to you, Paula? And uh, she said, sure. So she sat down. She goes, um, when I came to the Y today, I, we pulled in, my son and I pulled in uh, behind your children uh, driving your car. And my mom's like, oh, no. Like, what happened? And she goes, you know, and so we parked behind your car, and um, all your kids climbed out of the windows. <laughs> you know, because and my, mom, my mom starts explaining this. She's like, listen, my, my husband's a little crazy with the cars, and we got to drive for two months. He's a very economical guy. She's trying, she, no, 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 you know, I, I'm not here for you to apologize for any of that. She goes, I mean, I'm here to apologize to you. Mom's like, why would you be apologizing to me? She goes, because when your kids were getting out of the car and they were climbing out the windows, my son, a, a child of privilege, looked at your kids and made a disparaging remark. And I'm here to apologize, not for what he said, because only I heard it, but I want to apologize that I didn't raise my son better. Because when I looked at my son, who's a, who has everything, has a silver spoon and everything, and I saw your kids. My son is very lonely. Um, he's very unhappy. But he's very wealthy. And your kids were climbing out of this junky old car with very little, in language of our presentation, with very little ego volume. Right? They're not getting out of that car defensive, shamed, embarrassed. That junky old car was just not a part of any hero system that they were playing in, right? They got out of that car not only with very, and because they had very little ego volume, little embarrassment about this car, I don't want to be associated with this car and be seen climbing out of this car, because they had very little ego volume. He said, your, your kids and their friends climbed out and they were laughing, they had a good time, and, and, I, and I realized at that moment I had misraised my son. He's, he is, he's, He's playing by a different hero system than your kids obviously are. She didn't say it that way, but you get my point. And I tell that stu- story to my college students because I'm saying, like, you probably drove to this campus. ACU is a private school, so it's middle to upper class. 
you probably drove, you, you say you come from middle class family. Your, your dad's an electrician, you took out a student loan, and you drive your junky old car onto our campus. And then some kid who lives in North Dallas drives up to you with the Mercedes they got for their birthday. And you feel diminished and shame, right? Self-esteem game, right? I don't belong here. I don't have money. Social comparison. And suddenly what is a source of dis, this dissatisfaction becomes shaming to you, right? But if you are able to say, I'm grateful that I got this junky old car. Right? I'm just glad I have a car because some kids don't even have a car. And I got the, my parents sent me with this taped up car. It, uh, and some of you could probably, we should just tell stories of cars that we used to own. <laughs> you know, just, 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 just kind of help with the shame, right? Just go like cars we used to drive, you know? And, but if you could suddenly feel grateful for that car, then something that was a source of your inferiority becomes a source of gratitude. And I would argue that that magic of this is like, ins- right, a diminished, embarrassing, broken part of my life becoming a place of grace. That movement is on the screen, right? Just beginning to practice gratitude for what we have, even if it's not much. And this is why, in paradox of all paradoxes, that some of the happiest people in the world actually aren't from America. You know, that, that, um, that Americans don't lead the world, even though we have this, there's this weird break where our, our happiness is declining as our affluence is rising. And again, I think it's because of the self-esteem trap. As affluence goes up and we watch affluence on TV or on Instagram, it just creates that shaming kind of factor. Um, and we've lost capacities for gratitude. So this study up here, I put it up here just as a reminder to say this. This is a very simple study. Uh, Bob Edmonds, he's a psychologist out in California. He's a, he works in a secular setting, but he's actually a Christian. But he's the world-leading expert on gratitude, so he's sneaky. Um, and he did this study, and the name of the study was called Counting Your Blessings. So that, in that, that's sneaky if you know the old hymn, right? What's the old hymn? Count your blessings, name them one by one. So that's a sneaky title. Bob snuck in. They're counting your blessings. And the, and the intervention here, the therapy was very simple. He had college students and community adults at the end of every day do a gratitude journal. A lot of you guys already do this. Some of you guys practice gratitude as a part of your prayer practice. So he had basically had them, you didn't tell them they were doing prayer journals, but at the end of the day, he said, I want you to list three things every day that you're grateful for. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be big. Just three things today you're grateful for it. And he discovered after this intervention, simple gratitude practice, something that's dissatisfying becomes a source of joy. They were physically healthier and emotionally healthier. That's the cheapest therapy you're ever going to get. Did you spend three, just list three things before you go to bed every night, practice gratitude. That's a good signpost beyond self-esteem, Right? What does it mean to experience my life not as a performance, but as a gift? Not trying to compete and win a blue ribbon, but to receive what I have as a gift. That's a signpost. Um, And so with those signposts in hand, I kind of want to end, kind of start wrapping us up to where I think all of these things are pointing us. 
So if self-esteem is a trap, all this research in psychology can point us to something that is beyond the ego, transcending self-esteem. I don't think it gives us the answer, but it gets us real close to the answer, specifically these last two things, mattering and gift, things that quiet the ego. Um, Where does that come from? And so what do I actually think um, the secret to happiness is? Um, I think that, that what I tell my students and what I will tell you is that I think the problem of identity and the problem of self-esteem cannot be solved psychologically. I don't even think it can be solved therapeutically. Um, self-esteem is inherently a religious problem. That's one of my big top takeaways. The problem of self-esteem, it's a religious problem. How do you feel worthy of love and belonging? How do you therapeutically make that happen? How do you will yourself into that? Um, how do you perform for that? Uh, how do you self-esteem yourself into that mattering or that gratitude? Um, so I want to suggest that what I mean by the, the problem of self-esteem can only be solved religiously, it means that you have to kind of lay down the performing and you have to receive your, your worth, your value, your dignity. I think that's the secret. There's nothing you can do to earn this. There's nothing you can do to matter in a durable way. But it's something has to be given to you as, as gift, as, a, as grace. I think that's why gratitude is so powerful because it is yourself, your very being is received as a gift. And, I, and I, behind me, I describe this as kind of a baptismal identity rooted in Jesus' own baptism. Because I think that's the primordial vision that you need to have in your mind when you think about identity. Because Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, before he's done a thing, before he's collected any blue ribbons, before he's been promoted, before he has a GPA, before he gets a diploma, okay, before he does anything to, to compete in the cultural hero system of his day. And by and goodness sakes, there was a cultural hero system in his day. There was a way to matter. Um, he goes to the River Jordan, and he's baptized. And a voice comes to him. And what does that voice say? Yeah, you are my beloved child. And his ministry begins there, out of operating out of that fundamental gift. He knows who he is immediately. And he operates out of that base for the rest of his ministry. And I think this is the way Jesus transcended neurosis. Uh, Jesus, I think, was probably the least neurotic person in the world. And, and the reason is because he didn't need to compete. He didn't need to perform. He, he wasn't impressing a single person out there. Um, nothing, and therefore, think about his ego volume. Like, nothing is, he doesn't need to, he's having a bad hair day. Do they like me? Am I popular? Am I successful? Um, and he goes through horrible shaming and even death itself and remains completely nonviolent through the whole thing. Like even when his life is at stake, anxiety could not be leveraged against him. Pilate says, I, have, I can kill you. Like surely that is going to make you anxious and therefore comply. And he's like, not, that doesn't 
even scare me. You don't have any power over me. And to me, what I'm interested in here is not Pilate's political power over Jesus' body. I'm talking about his psychological power over Jesus. He doesn't have any traction because he knew who he was at the start. The trouble with us is that we don't know who we are, and so we go out there and try to build something, right? We go out there and we try to construct something to display to the world and kind of say, see, this is why you should invite me to coffee. This is why I should be included in your group. This is why you should listen to me or pay attention to me. This is why I I matter. Here are the blue ribbons I've collected from the hero system of the world. As meager as they may be, okay, here's why I matter. Jesus does none of that because he receives his identity um, as a gift. Some of my other writings, I describe this as a Eucharistic identity. So um, you guys know the Eucharist um, where Jesus you know, or the Lord's Supper. But do you guys know what the Eucharist, uh, the word means? The Eucharist, what does that word mean in Greek? It means it gives thanks. So when Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks, the word there is Eucharist. And so that's why some traditions, like the Catholic tradition, will call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist because it's a thanksgiving meal. So some, another way, you can think about this as a baptismal identity, receiving yourself as the beloved of God. But the signpost of grace suggests that it's also a Eucharist a Eucharistic identity, that we, we break, we, we give thanks for everything that we have in our life and receive everything as gift. It's an open posture. You know, another example of this is Paul. Like, so when Paul says, if you want to talk about blue ribbons, about the cultural hero system, you want to brag, I can brag. And he kind of then walks through it. He goes, here's my trophy case of everything that kind of made me matter in the hero system of the Pharisees. Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law blameless, circumcised on the eighth day. It's like his resume. And then um, he says what? And I counted all trash. And actually the word, if you investigate it, is a little harsher. I probably can't say the word in church. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a little edgier than just trash or rubbish. It's really trash. It's, he, and, and, that, and that's kind of what Paul did to the hero system, right? He goes, I considered all the things that made me kind of matter, the, the, the hero system of the culture, and I, can, I, just, I just set it aside. Like, I, I just don't, I, I don't play that game anymore. That's kind of what I was asking those dads to do, those corporate VPs and venture capitalists. You know, I was, I was trying to say to them, treat it as rubbish. Um, for what? The surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Um, the, here's the way Jesus says it. It shows up in all different places. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Well, we already know what we've talked about. Fragile, unstable, contingent self-esteem. Don't, lay up your, don't collect treasures on earth because we all know how fragile all of that stuff is. It's going to get broken. It's going to get lost. There's divorce. There's unemployment. There's injury. In a minute, it can go. And you will experience loss. We all do. So put your treasures in a location. Receive them as treasure from a location in heaven, 
where you matter, right? Durable, steady value, immune from present circumstances. So Jesus was talking about this from the very beginning. Um, So I think that is, um, is that's the secret to happiness lecture. Um, Here's another voice. Um, One of my favorite articulations of this identity comes from um, Howard Thurman. I don't know if you guys know Howard. Anybody know Howard Thurman? Howard Thurman wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. It was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite books. Legend has it that wherever Dr. King would go, he would have a copy of this book in his suitcase. And in this book, Howard Thurman, who was a generation before Dr. King, uh, was reflecting upon why African Americans in America were so attracted to Jesus. What, what, what did they find compelling in the vision of Jesus that sustained the African American church through slavery and then Jim Crow segregation to the present day? What, was, what did they see in Jesus? Um, what sustained the African American community during all of those years? when they were at the very bottom of the cultural hero system of America. And this is what Howard Thurman wrote in the book, Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a book worth, really well worth reading. So this is Howard Thurman. So listen to the baptismal identity that I talk about, receiving your identity and worth as a gift, mattering despite circumstance. So Howard Thurman says this, the core analysis of Jesus is that we are a child of God. And this idea that God is mindful of the individual, right, that God is mindful of you, is of tremendous import. Because in this world, the socially disadvantaged person is constantly given a negative answer to the most important question upon which our mental health depends. Who am I and what am I? That first question has to do with a basic self-estimate, a profound sense of belonging, of counting, of mattering, right? Because if a person feels that they do not belong, they do not matter, in a way that is perfectly normal for other people to belong, we develop a deep sense of insecurity, of insecurity, And when this happens to a person, it provides the basic material for what psychologists call the inferiority complex. And so the awareness of being a child of God, so we're back here to Jesus' baptismal identity. The awareness of being a child of God tends to stabilize the ego and results in a new courage, fearlessness, and power. And I have seen this happen again and again. Because seeing oneself as a child of God establishes the ground of personal dignity, right? That that's the stable platform. That's not the quicksand of performing for self-esteem, right? That is the, the ground of personal dignity. So that a profound sense of personal worth can absorb the fear reaction. And again, I think that's why Jesus is so calm and relaxed in front of Pilate. There is no fear there because his mattering is secured already. So that a profound sense of personal worth can absorb the fear reaction. Because this alone is not enough. 
but without it, nothing else is of value. So the first task, and I love this line, the first task is to get the self immunized. That's what this is. It immunizes you against all the shaming from the cultural hero system. To get the self immunized against the most radical insults and the threat of violence. Because when that is accomplished, relaxation takes the place of churning fear. Because the individual now feels that he or she counts that they belong. I, I think that's the best articulation of what I'm trying to say. That that's what the African American community found in Jesus. They found a way to matter in a way that transcended the contingencies of the hero system of their societies. And that dignity immunized them from the shame of the hero system. And that secret is what we all carry. Um, you're trying to instill it into your children. Right? You're trying to instill it into each other. Right, That when the self is immunized against that, then you can climb out of a car that's right, without embarrassment. Then you can turn your back on a promotion and cook pancakes for your kids on a Saturday. Right? You can start having a capacity to make different choices because the strings of neurosis and anxiety have been cut. I wrote a whole other book about this in uh, Hebrews. It says that Jesus came in the flesh to free those, to free us from the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. This is Hebrews 4, I think, 5, 2. It's in Hebrews 2. Jesus came in the flesh to free us from the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who all their lives were enslaved to the fear of death. That's in Hebrews. He's he's coming here to emancipate us from a power of fear, a slavery to a fear of death. Remember that slide about the hero system? Our slavery to the fear of death isn't like, uh, I'm afraid of dying. It is the fear, this neurotic fear of mattering is, right? The devil gets his hooks in you through your self-esteem and your shame and your guilt or your pride, your vanity, and your workaholism. And you're addicted to appearances and performances. He's going to get you either way. If you're winning, he gets you that way. If you're losing, he's going to get you this way. So some of it's it's narcissism and some of it's depression. But either way, it's neurosis. It's the anxiety. And we're enslaved to it, he says, our entire lives. And so what the free person looks like. So the way I describe it to my students is like we're all puppets. And the strings, the devil's the puppet master. And the strings on the puppet is your neurosis, your anxieties, your insecurities, your vanity, your performance, right? And the devil just makes you dance your entire life. You're just dancing, playing that game, trying to satisfy somebody's vision of a meaningful life, trying to lose 10 more pounds, trying to get a little bit more promoted, trying to, you know, name drop a little bit, right? Just, just, you just dance your whole life. And then, but he says, Jesus comes to do what? Just cut the strings and create an unprecedented thing that Paul calls new creation, something that has never existed on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve. And that's a non-anxious person who is therefore free, who stands in the world like Jesus stands in the world. No ego volume, 
available to other people, grateful. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, but he's grateful. Do, do not worry. Be like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Like, he's not shamed by his homelessness. He's not embarrassed in front of anybody. He's not even afraid of being killed. Now, let me be clear. None of us get there in this lifetime. What I'm painting for you is the picture of mental health and spiritual well-being. What I'm trying to describe is the psychology of Jesus. You and I only approximate that in smaller or greater ways. Um, But to me, fundamentally, that's the choice that we face. So I tell my students um, that, you remember how Moses, before the children of God, you know, going to the promised land. Do you remember that? And there's this famous scene where Moses says, today I set before you what? Life and death, right? Choose life. So I stand before you as Moses, but my choice before you is you're going to choose neurosis or grace. As best I can tell, there's only two ways to live a life. You're either going to go down the route of self-esteem and play the game that I talked about before lunch. And if you want to do that, I tell my students, and I'll tell you, if you want to do that, knock yourself out. You guys have a good time out there. I'm, in, I'm dead serious. Walk out those doors, play the same game, knock yourself out. Keep doing what you're doing. It's working, isn't it? We're all so happy. <laughs> right? I don't know what other game you play. Right? You're going to go out there and you're going to do that game. You're going to be a guy, and you're going to do the guy thing. You're going to play the guy hero system in America. Go do that thing. Knock yourself out, guys. You know, work on your handicap. You know, I I don't know. Like, what are we doing out there? What are we doing? And women, you're you're going to you have a different. Maybe you're not worrying about you know par threes. You know, but you're looking at a scale. You know, or whatever. Um, We all have our metrics. Go live your life. Go do it. Or, or, you can receive your identity as a gift. Cut the strings. Stop dancing. Stop performing. Stop playing. Stop chasing the blue ribbons. And settle into an identity that is hidden in Christ, as Paul says. And as best I can tell, as a psychologist, these are the only two ways to live is to either play self-esteem or transcend that ego through grace or a gift. I set before you neurosis or grace. Now, admittedly, like I said, this is hard. Um, So I want to end with um, that when I think, when we think about things like prayer and Bible readings and worship and spiritual disciplines, I want you to start thinking about these things as therapies of memory. That when we come in here tomorrow to worship, Yes, we're giving honor to God. But as I tell my students, worship, psychologically speaking, is trying to recreate what happened to Jesus in the River Jordan. Worship is re-experiencing the moment where God speaks to you as his beloved, is remembering that moment, because we forget. We're going to go out there, and we're going to play in the hero system, and we're going to experience, we're going to come in here with a variety, we're going to have noisy egos, 
we're going to be shamed or we're going to be feeling pretty good this week because, you know, our kid got, you know, they won an award or they started the nutcracker or whatever. Um, so we matter now because our kid did. You know what I mean? Like we're going to come in here with our, yeah, here's my blue ribbon. How's your week? Well, here's my little blue ribbon. How was your week? You know? You know, like, really? Okay. Um, tell you, that's a whole hero system ballet. My Lord. I've looked into that world, and I'm just like, thank goodness I didn't have girls. You know? I've had to do the sports hero system for West Texas boys. That's its own hero system. But I have looked into the world of ballet. Woo! That is... Who gets that fairy princess queen in the Nutcracker? That's a... What is it? Sugar plum... Yeah, yeah. Then there's like a roll. There's like these rolls. You get that roll. Your, your girl gets that roll. That's a big deal. Like you, for one whole Christmas season, you matter. <laughs> you know? And, and they let you know it. You know, they're going to they're gonna mention it, that they matter that season. Anyway. Um, so you forget. We, we, we come back in to worship or, or prayer time with God confused again about who we are we lose track of the answer to the question who are you you know like and i come in feeling well nobody you know nobody special um and so prayer reminds us again so prayer to me isn't fundamentally just about asking god for a bunch of stuff again to me prayer is that eucharistic practice of giving thanks um uh to me, prayer and worship, study, or practices that we turn our identities from this, clinging in, in Philippians, right? Clinging to status and position. But what does it say? He didn't cling to or grasp at, at it. What did he do? He emptied himself. To me, fundamentally, if you want a visual picture of, of what we're trying to do with our psychologies, we're going to go from a life like this where we're grasping and white-knuckling it because it's going to get lost or taken away. So we're inherently violent and competitive and worried all the time because what's mine, you know, we're very uncharitable. Because in a culture of scarcity, what do we want to do? Grab and hoard. And to me, what we're trying, what I'm talking about is a psychological posture that, that turns our identities up like this. So when we pr- worship with like this, that posture, or we pray this, with this posture, psychologically or physically, we're back in that baptismal moment where you remember again, a therapy of memory. You recall again, okay, that's right. I forgot. For, for 72 panicked hours, I, I lost my mind. I forgot who I was because um, it was a really hard three days. But back in these disciplines of them, I remember again, I let it go, I reclaim it again. Or as I like to say, a lot of the spiritual life is just doing the dishes. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this is not a one-off. I, I wish it was, like, you, you know, like, but we know that you guys have been around long enough in the spiritual journey. You know that that moment you had in high school where God came to you has been a long time, and we forget. And so a lot of the spiritual life is upkeep. It's doing the dishes. It's not a one-off evangelistic moment where we remembered this at our baptism. It's we forget. And so there's some hygiene here where we remember again and again. We reclaim it again and again. 
So, so I don't want to leave you with this like, oh, he just told me to matter all over again. No, no, I, I'm asking you to practice disciplines where this is remembered over and over. And to rethink of, don't think of worship and prayer and other sorts of practices and spiritual disciplines. Because even the medit- mindfulness practices of being present to God. So we were practicing silence in my small group. And a lot of people were struggling again with the noisy egos and were using breath prayers. You guys know like breath prayers where you just kind of pick a word and you just say that word. So maybe you breathe out, I am a child of God or something like that. You breathe that over and you just settle into that therapy of memory all over again. Um, and then, you know, we came back the next week and we we're all performing again. Did I do it right? You know, and I said to the group, I said, here's the thing. Practicing a non-performing posture toward God is the heart of the practice. To be before God in a non-performing way. Because a lot of us will even turn these things into one more hero system. Religious people are very... Right, you guys know the hero system of religion, the hero system of churches of Christ. The way, the way to here's just one more thing to perform, but but being prayerful and just being before God in a non-performing way is the practice of remembering and receiving. And so, um, I want to end though with a with a story, um, and we're going to end probably a little bit early, um, but some of you guys are looking a little sleepy. But let me end with a story. Um, that I think encapsulates everything I've been talking about. Um, and it's a personal story, too. Um, so I got to a really low point in my spiritual life uh, many years ago and um, had kind of done the college professor thing. I had got, you know, I did the hero system. I kind of like got promoted, got tenured, became the chair of the department, wrote a couple books, you know, and suddenly, like, you know, you matter. But you don't, right? Because there's always, like, somebody who sells more books than you, you know? So I always hate it when people say, how's the book selling? I'm like, are you, are you just trying to make me more neurotic? Like, just why would you bring up the performance of my books and expect that would be a relaxing? Like, that's a, that's a morally hazardous question to ask. How's your book selling? I'm like, because now I've got to watch it and pay attention to it. You know, one of my great spiritual failings is the Amazon book rank. Like, you go on, there's literally a metric. How well it's doing. So I look on there like, oh, <laughs> it's gone down. So I'm not on Instagram, but I got this Amazon thing that, that bothers me, you know. You, so you obsessively check it to see if people like you or not, you know. And, you know, and again, you got to be grateful. So I try to tell people, like, like, the fact, you know, a lot of people would like to write a book, and I should just be grateful for it. So I just try to be grateful for it. Like, I don't care how it performs. Because I don't want that to be one more blue ribbon that I show to the world and say, you know, why I matter. I just want to, anyway. You all have to figure out your own struggles with that. But I kind of played that out, and I, and I just just had felt a big spiritual ache in me. My faith was really struggling. And so I started attending this little church called Freedom Fellowship on Wednesday night. And our Freedom Fellowship we serve a meal, and then we have a worship service. And so the people that come to Freedom, it's like a mission church. So it's got a kind of a soup pantry, soup kitchen feel to it. So a lot of people that come, a lot of our friends at Freedom are homeless, low socioeconomic status, a lot of people coming out from prisons on parole, lots of people in recovery. So right, so it's a, a really marginalized uh, uh, community. 
And I started going there because I just felt like I just needed to look for God out of the, the normal spaces. Because everywhere I stood, I was still in the hero system. All my friends were college professors and were doing the whole kind of, you know, comparative stuff that you do in professional circles, you know. It just keeps reminding you of how you're doing well or not. Like, I just got to get out of there. Like, it's, it, it wasn't healthy for me. So I went and planted myself at this little church and was sitting in the back. And freedom, um, even though it was planted by a church of Christ, because of the people it's attracted, um, it had attracted kind of a very charismatic, kind of Pentecostal vibe. So the people that came were charismatic people. Um, and so the worship was m- way more exuberant than everything I had experienced growing up in the churches of Christ. You know, like these people were, like we had like prayer shawls, like pieces of fabric you just waved, or prayer flags, which I find very dangerous. Um, like, like I really think there should be safety. Any Pentecostal person should go through safety training before you are allowed to take a prayer flag. You just start waving that thing around in the grip of the Holy Spirit, you know, because uh, Karen, you don't want to stay, because she just, she just waves it in your field of vision. I'm like, I can't worship here because this big prayer flag is going to hit me in the head. And uh, one time, I talk about this book in uh, Reviving Old Scratch, uh, like this Holy Ghost conga line emerged. Like somebody started dancing, and then they joined in. I was not going to join in, because I'm sure God wouldn't have been pleased with us moving around like that. And, and uh, I was like, this, is, this can't be right. And, and so I just stood in my chair and just gave people high fives as they passed. Just high five. Go, Jesus. Like, like. I, I love all of you people, um, but I'm not moving. I feel, I feel really uncomfortable as a Church of Christ person. Very uncomfortable. So that's my church. That's my church. So I sat in the back trying to kind of just, so I just kept on showing up. And, and I'm telling you all this story to tell you a story about Miss Beth. And I need to tell you a story about dancing because Miss Beth had her own little practice. So Miss Beth um, had, had a really rough life. Lots of sexual abuse in her family. Lots of abuse with men through her life. Um, been homeless many times on the street. Um, poor. Had lost all her teeth. Um, had dealt with uh, meth addiction for many years. Um, but she had found Jesus and started coming to freedom. And eventually Beth worked her way up to kind of be the head of our kitchen. And so, um, so she kind of was the one that kind of directed the kitchen and got the food prepared. So she would kind of become one of our our spiritual leaders at the church. So when I showed up and I wanted to just help mop, Miss Beth was the one that gave me orders. So I listened to her. And she had her own unique spiritual practice during worship. So during this big charismatic display, she would go off to the corner. It was literally this corner in our church. So our church is like this, two aisles and a stage. And she would come over here to a corner by herself um, and she would have this uh, dance that she would do, very, very small and subtle. But she just kind of would open her hands up like this, and she'd close her eyes, and she'd just kind of have this, like, sway that she would do. Um, and the other thing that she would do is she wore, you're probably wondering about this slide behind me, she wore to church a plastic princess tiara. Now, the origin of the tiara was that Jana, my wife, had some women from Freedom Over for a Valentine's Day. Because in the cultural hero system of romance, Valentine's Day can be hard 
if you've had a lot of trauma and abuse and you feel like you're left on the outside of that holiday. So Janet, knowing that there might be a hard day, a shaming day for some of the women at Freedom, invited them over to our house for Thanksgiving dinner and celebration. And as a part of that celebration, Jana had handed out these princess tiaras, had the, had the women put them on and, uh, and declared over each other that night that despite our love stories being sad and rocky, that the tiara represented that we were children and daughters of the king. That's what they declared over themselves, that we are daughters of the king. And that, like, so convicted and, caps, and kind of captured Miss Beth's spirituality that she would wear this tiara to church because of what it re- represented. Everything what I've been talking about, right, this durable, steady sacrament. You guys know what the word sacrament means? It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. That tiara was sacramental. It's a physical thing that represented a spiritual truth about her, about who her value really came from. And when she was having a particularly tough week, she would come in with that tiara. And so you knew when she had the the princess tiara on, she was doing battle with the devil that night. Like she was armed for battle when she had the princess tiara on because that meant she had been remembering some things about her past, she had been given some clues about where she fit into the status of the world because she was still very poor, lived in a trailer. Like when, she, when the cultural hero system of the world had informed her very clearly about where she stood in the hero system, she would put that tiara on and come to church to worship. Because as I said, therapy of memory. You come in and you re-remember what and whose you are. So she would come in with that tiara and she would stand in that corner and she would dance, and she was beautiful. She would be, it's, it's hard, let me try to describe it. It was, you could see, let me layer this. You could see as you watched her how she saw Jesus see her. Does that make sense? Like you could see the way she was, she had ditched the broken mirror from the first part, Right? She was seeing herself clearly again, and she was just transformed. Um, and that Howard Thurman quote about relaxation, like she just, her body would relax, and she was beautiful. And I sat there on the back as a white, successful college professor, author of books, and looked across the room at her and went, I don't know what she has, but I need that. I had been performing in the hero system of academia and all the stuff that you think would make me matter, and it wasn't making me happy at all. It was just making me more neurotic or more narcissistic, both at the same time, which is a paradox. And I looked at her, and I go, I don't know what that is, but that's what I need. And so over the years, Miss Beth taught me, like, how to worship, how to open my hands up, how to, how to receive that again. Um, how to remember, and she and many other of the, my friends there kind of walked me back into faith and helped me find an identity beyond self-esteem, beyond performance. Miss um, Beth died a couple years ago. Um, she had back pain, and, you, you know, when you're poor, you don't go check 
uh, back pain. Right. It's too expensive to go, you know, you know, go to the emergency room for back pain. But it was cancer. And so when you're homeless like that and poor, you, when they get a cancer diagnosis, it's way too late, you know. And so it was late-stage cancer, and she died soon afterwards. And I remember visiting with her in the hospital with Jan and my wife. And um, we prayed over her, and we sang. And I remember stroking her foot, thanking her for saving my faith. And because I think she embodies what I've been trying to talk about, about the secret to happiness. By the metrics of the world... She wasn't anybody that you would pay attention to. Um, but she figured out the secret to happiness, which was in Jesus. Um, and so I want to conclude with that story. Tomorrow, I'll talk a little bit more about all of this. So the sermon is going to plug right into this. We're going to revisit some of these things. But I wanted you to think about Miss Beth dancing in a, a cheap girl's princess tiara remembering who, who she was. And I hope you find moments in your life where you could practice those disciplines of memory. Um, so let's pray and we'll end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pry our fingers off of the things that we grasp at, the things that we hold, believing that if we can collect enough of these things that somehow we matter. Help us let that go and to turn our arms and hands outward to receive the gift of your love. And Father, give us courage that we will soon forget this. We will forget it within the minutes when we walk out of the doors. So interrupt us again with your grace. And help your children, the, the people here at this church, be the hands and the feet of that message that we practice reminding each other who we are and whose we are. Help us as we try to speak life into each other, as we try to speak life into our children, as we try to speak this truth into the lives of our spouses, as we try to speak this life into the lives of our friends and our coworkers. And that as that pours out as rain on a dry, thirsty ground, that your kingdom will begin to come drop by drop here in Temple, Texas. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for having me.